This is Task Force N Radio, and I'm its host, John Crotech, advocate for humankind, education, and commerce. We are on a mission to create human healing on a massive global scale and to tell the stories of people who have dedicated their lives to making our planet a better place to live. Our guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio is medical researcher, pioneer, spiritual pioneer, Dr. Rick Strassman. He's originally from Los Angeles, California, and he holds his degrees from not only Stanford University, but also the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, a yeshiva university. Pretty impressive. Dr. Strassman took his internship and general psychiatry residency at the University of California, Davis Medical Center in Sacramento. Been there. It's a beautiful town and received the Sandoz Award for Outstanding Graduating Resident in 1981. Extremely impressive and congratulations. He spent 10 years as a tenured professor at the University of New Mexico, performing clinical research, investigating the function of the pineal hormone melatonin. He also began the first new United States government-approved and funded clinical research with psychedelic drugs in over 20 years. We'll talk a little bit about that, the hurdles, the things, all of those things. Dr. Strassman has published 30 peer-reviewed scientific papers and serves as a reviewer for several psychiatric research journals. He has been a consultant to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, National Institute on Drug Abuse, the VA Administration Hospitals, Social Security Administration, and other state and local agencies. He practices psychiatry in Taos, New Mexico, and is clinical associate professor of psychiatry in the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. I got to tell you, I'm humbled. I'm honored to have Dr. Strassman today on this podcast. Welcome, Dr. Strassman. Well, thanks, John. It's a pleasure being here. Super excited. And I know you're out West. There's a couple hours difference. We had a little bit of a snafu today and I appreciate you making this happen. Let's get started. Tell us a little bit about growing up in California and and how you, you know, who were your mentors and just tell us about that. Well, yeah, I was born and raised in Southern California, you know, born in LA, raised in the Valley. I was the middle of three kids raised in lower middle class, conservative Jewish family. My father was an aerospace engineer. My mom was an administrative secretary. I went to public schools in Los Angeles, which were outstanding at the time. I don't know how they are now, but they were great then. And uh, took six hours extra schooling at the local Hebrew school for eight years, where I learned a little bit of Hebrew and history. Then in college, I got interested in altered states of consciousness both those brought on by drugs and those brought on by meditation and thought there must be some biological common factor that explained how similar descriptions were of drug states and meditative states. Pursuing that was the main reason I went to medical school and became a psychiatrist to study psychedelic drugs in order to understand the biology of spiritual experience. I was finally able to put those kinds of ideas to the test in the DMT work that I did at UNM from 90 to 95. The story of that research in a behind-the-scenes type of perspective is what the first book you were reading the back of, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. And also, in the meantime, I had gone through a four-year classical psychoanalysis on the couch up to five days a week for, you know, four years, pretty extensive 
at least a long you know, tenure under the training supervision of a Zen monastery, an extended Zen community. So I approached the work we were doing from a Buddhist point of view, a scientific point of view, the brain chemistry, which was what the grants and the project was intended to understand, a psychological approach to the effects I was expecting, you know, Freudian psychoanalytic model of the way the mind worked and how you know, drugs would affect it. So I finished that work in 95, moved to Canada, came back to New Mexico, and I've been here since 2000. Once I finished my DMT research, I just worked in the clinical you know, sector for the next 13, 14 years. And I retired from clinical work in about 2008, and since then I've been studying and writing I finished my first book of you know, fiction. Well, it was you know, published in you know, March of 2019. It's an account of a year of being quite sick and recuperating that occurred in you know, five years ago. What was the title of that book, Doctor? It is called uh, Joseph Levy Escapes Death. It's a pretty quick read, you know, fiction, as opposed to you know, nonfiction, which requires you know, such extensive footnotes and you know, references. It was fun to write an account, like an alter ego, uh, the perspective of one aspect of my character who went through a fairly challenging year, which I think helped me become, in a way, much of what I've become. I mean, I was glad to be alive, and I thank you know, God for being alive. Uh, I really became much more you know, grateful to God. We're glad you're alive. And that appreciation is certainly heartfelt. You know, we can feel it through the airwaves here. You know, I want to, you know, thank you again for the controversial, but the fascinating study. And what's really cool about what you did during those DMT clinical studies, I don't think anybody around had, at that time or at any time has really taken the it's interesting with the Buddhist philosophies introduced into it, but I don't think anybody at that time was even thinking of anything like that. You think that was part of the reason that you had so many hurdles to jump through to even get going on that? Well, I think if I had been more explicit about the religious and the spiritual questions that were you know, driving my study, there wasn't, I don't think the study you know, would have ever been approved. I kept the hypotheses and the aims to be quite well contained within the you know, drug abuse model. What we were going to look at were the biological and psychological effects of the drug from a schizophrenia perspective, a, you know, drug abuse perspective, a brain chemistry perspective. You know, so there weren't any spiritual questions that were at least explicitly raised as a part of a study. The, it took you know, two years to get the project underway. The main Obstacles weren't really you know, malice on the part of the federal government as much as it was just you know, working at a system that had never needed to be developed you know, before, which was a means of DEA and the FDA communicating with each other. question was, you know, how can researchers study humans with a Schedule I drug, which hadn't been attempted for 20 years or so? You know, most of the people I worked with, with the government, were, you know, helpful. You know, they weren't really standing in the way. They just wanted to make sure everything was done properly because, you know, there was a lot, you know, that was writing on this study. The psychedelics are quite controversial drugs. And for anybody to start working with you know, them again, it really needed to be in 
extremely airtight project with all of the safeguards in place and contingencies to handle any problems. So the FDA you know, wanted things done a certain way that the DEA did, and I was fine with those requirements because I wanted to make sure everybody was on board, everybody was you know, supporting it. And it was incredible that you actually got everything approved, you went through the process, and then you started. I don't want to give away too much of the book, and the book that Dr. Strassman and I are referencing is DMT, The Spirit Molecule, but there are some questions. Can you speculate at all? Because you were right in there, you were right in the mix, you were in the room. Can you speculate if any of the results may have been skewed because that your test subjects, your patients, had actually experienced the psychedelic world prior to your testing? Well, we used only volunteers that had previous psychedelic drug experience, but only one or two had ever tried DMT before. We chose experienced psychedelic users for a couple of reasons. We thought they would be less prone to panic on a research unit where the studies took place. They were more experienced with the altered state of consciousness. They had developed ways of dealing with any anxiety. We also thought that experienced folks would be able to give better descriptions of the state, especially comparisons with other psychedelic drugs. Like, you know, we could ask them, what's it like compared to acid or mushrooms? And I think, you know, that the government was worried about people developing abuse of, you know, psychedelics because of exposure to the drugs in our study. So they wanted people with prior use. And so our study couldn't be blamed for any imaginary or prospective development of psychedelic drug abuse. Yeah. So some were experienced with a lot of psychedelics and some not much at all. I think the more relevant question about skewing of effects is the research unit and the environment where we had to draw blood and take vital signs and pupil diameters and rectal temperature and those kinds of things. So, you know, some of our volunteers, you know, did have experiences of being experimented on in a you know, hyper you know, technological environment, but others, you know, went to other places like spaceships and the Taj Mahal and outer space. Even if you're taking ayahuasca, which is a jungle, you know, psychedelic, in the jungle, there's still experiences of technology and flying saucers and spaceships. So I think it cuts in both ways. The technological kinds of imagery are able to occur both in a technological setting and in the jungle. And the more organic experiences can take place in the jungle and in a laboratory environment. You know, you led right into my next question because I know that in the book, you talked how very important that the set and the setting was. And you just alluded to the fact that room 531, which was where all the testing took place, even though it wasn't ideal, maybe for those apprehensions, the experiences still seem similar. So I, I like that. I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, I think the experiences were you know, so similar because it's a state of consciousness which occurs quite reliably from person to person and within the same person. It occurs very quickly. You're out of your body within 30 seconds or so. You're in this world of light within a minute or two. There's an intelligence that's contained in that space, as it were, an interaction with the contents of the state. You've still generally got your wits about you. Uh, You can think and make decisions and decide what to do. And there's communication oftentimes between the 
person having the experience and the contents, as it were, of the experience itself. Fascinating. Let me ask you this question. You know, in it, this is, I know that in your, the book, you outlined the differences. Can you explain the difference between psychedelic and hallucinogen? Is there a difference or are they just the same word, just a different way? I don't know. Yeah, it's the same family of drugs, but just given a different name. The one I like the most is psychedelic mind manifesting or mind disclosing. It just kind of reveals what's in the mind, either the conscious mind or the unconscious mind. These drugs used to be called hallucinogens. You know, that was the preferred you know, medical you know, legal term. You know, that's not that great a term for a couple of reasons. It's a bit negative. You know, hallucinations aren't real. You know, but what's going on in the mind is real and feels quite real. So it's a bit disparaging. And also, frank hallucinations, uh, you know, seeing things that aren't there, is quite uncommon on these drugs. And even with eyes closed and the display occurring in your mind, they're not really felt to be hallucinations by the person experiencing them. They're more, I guess, considered visions. You know, that might be the more you know, neutral term. If you're studying these drugs from the perspective of schizophrenia, or if you're studying them because of your interest in psychosis, the you know, relevant term used to be psychotomimetic. You know, one term which has become more popular is entheogen, which means internally generating the divine or you know, generating you know, God from within. But I think you know, that's you know, kind of limited as well, because not everybody you know, believes in the divine or spirituality or God. And I think it's just a description of one kind of state, one of many different possible outcomes. Yeah, and you would be turning off a you know, significant you know, segment of the population if these were only called entheogens. You know, what if you're a hardcore atheist? You're not going to want to take an entheogen. Therefore, I think you know, psychedelic is the most generic, generally relevant term. Thank you. You know, you, you mentioned Wyahaska and, you know, I was <laughs> fascinated, you know, because the elements to make this particular drug is found in root bark. And I'm always curious as to what were these guys doing? How did they figure that out? And then this long and arduous process of creating this tea, I'm just fascinated by that. And I wonder if there is a spiritual side to that, if the divine somehow led our earliest ancestors into these realms to delve into these plant drugs, that part just blows me away. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. The creation story of one of the Brazilian ayahuasca churches, uh, the UDV, their story of you know how these drugs were discovered to be mixed together to make ayahuasca is that years ago, King Solomon came from Israel and ended up in the Amazon. And you know, he's the one who explained the secret of combining the two plants. Shamans will tell you that the plants told them what to combine you know, one with each other. Another description is if you, well, it's a combination of two plants. You know, one, the leaves are used of and the stems. And uh, the other one contains the DMT, and uh, the leaves only are used. The first plant, the compounds in that plant primarily make the DMT orally active. But if they're you know, taken by themselves, they still are psychoactive. And uh, I understand, but I'm no expert in the field, is if you are only eating the leaves of the first plant, it affects your perception of other plants 
they look somehow different, or perhaps you eat other plants in combination with the baseline of the plants or the leaves of that first plant. And if you're already on the first plant, the other plants' effects become much more pronounced. You know, so there are a number of ways that uh, you can explain how it happened from the spiritual or the you know, mythological you know, to the you know, psycho-physical. But I think the answer is one of those things that's you know, buried in the mists and we'll never really know. I couldn't agree with you more. And it is fascinating. You know, when we talk about enlightenment and divinity and spirit world and, you know, what I draw from it, my own personal would be it's an awareness. And part in the book was about the Buddhist community. And one of the things that was written, I believe, was bridled enlightenment. What does that mean? Did they not want to go to the bridled enlightenment? Yes. I can't remember my use of that term. On what page is it on? I don't know the exact page, but it was about the Buddhist community and they had been very, very supportive. And then there had been some blowback and this bridled enlightenment was maybe not wanting to take it to the next step. I'm not sure what exactly that meant. You know, we're not here. The Buddhists do amazing things. I mean, without Buddhists, the world would not be as great as it is. And I just, I I thought that term was kind of funny, this bridled enlightenment, you know, they were maybe trying to put a stamper on it. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I just can't remember my use of that term. But in any event, yeah, I had been talking with the community about my interest in spirituality and with you know, psychedelics because, and one of the pieces of evidence that was quite strong and encouraged me all along the way was how many of those junior monks who are now you know, senior monks had their first flash of enlightenment on LSD. And that was what ultimately you know, led them to become Buddhist monks. You know, so that was inspiration. I mean, I felt I was on the right track if there was that kind of connection between psychedelics and Zen practice. So over all these years, you know, having these you know, conversations in person and exchanging of letters. But when I finally started you know, to do it, it became you know, more than just purely theoretical. And I started writing about it, like the relationship between you know, Buddhism and you know, psychedelic you know, drug use. Yeah, and it just got a little too close for comfort for them anyway. They couldn't see publicly acknowledging a relationship between the two. So it was you know, self-serving, but completely understandable. I understand that. So throughout the book, you know, I was fascinated the references about the pineal gland itself and, you know, where it's located and the things that it does and this connection, you know, between the spirit and what does that spirit mean? And here's this biological gland in the human body. And I believe you had referenced in there about how DMT is released at certain times when the human organism is undergoing a near-death experience or maybe, I believe, cesarean section for a female Can you draw a parallel there to anything? Why maybe your hypothesis or theory, why it releases DMT during these stressful moments? Yeah, well, those relationships are all speculative. I present the data, which allowed me to speculate, but those really aren't, you know, known source of facts that DMT rises at death or it enters the body at certain times or is released at certain moments. It's a theory, but those experiments still need to be done. But still, I like to think of that to the extent non-drug states resemble those brought on by giving DMT, it makes sense that 
naturally occurring DMT would play a role to the extent those two experiences resemble each other. Um, if a you know, near-death state resembles in some ways a DMT experience, then it makes you know, sense to think, well, is naturally occurring DMT playing a role? You know, the pineal story is interesting. I was always interested in the pineal. A mentor in college first you know, told me about it in 1972. It's a friend named James Fadiman, who was at Stanford at the time I was an undergraduate. So he told me about the pineal gland, and I became interested in it perhaps being a you know, source or the location of certain experiences that were you know, psychedelic slash spiritual. They were you know, felt to be important for a spiritual reason, and they resembled each other, or that state would resemble that brought on by taking a psychedelic. You know, so did the pineal you know, make you know, something that was you know, psychedelic and spiritual, or was it the location of that kind of effect? Fact. And you know some of the esoteric you know, physiologies out there, Kabbalah, you know, Sefi wrote, and the chakras of you know, Hindu you know, physiology. The highest spiritual experience takes place just at the location of the pineal gland on the you know, top and the center of the head. And in primitive you know, vertebrates, it's a third eye with a lens and a retina and cornea, and it is directly responsive to light. And as animals climb the evolutionary ladder, it became you know, more and more deeply embedded in the brain. So in humans, you know, mammals, or including humans, information about you know, light isn't you know, directly felt by the gland, but has to be experienced you know, through the eyes. So melatonin has always been the hormone from the pineal of primary interest. And you know, there were some old data saying it was slightly psychedelic. So we began you know, looking at the psychophysiology of melatonin. And that was my first study. And this was in 1984, 1985. And there wasn't that much you know, known about melatonin in humans. Uh, you know, we determined that it was primarily sedating. We gave it carefully, reasonable amounts. And there weren't any you know, psychedelic effects. And in the you know, meantime, I had learned about you know, DMT and switch you know, gears, switch from the melatonin work to the DMT work. Dr. Strassman, do you know if the work that you've done you know, with the psychedelics and DMT clinical experiments, do you know if anybody else, if it's inspired anybody else to formally explore the potential health benefits of psychedelics? Do you know if there's been anybody trying to follow up? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of exploded, actually, in uh, both the U.S. and in Europe. The study that occurred after ours you know, was an MDMA study. It, well, it was a Schedule One study. It wasn't a you know, classic you know, psychedelic drug like LSD or DMT um, or psilocybin. Still, the you know, protocol that we had developed to allow the administration of Schedule One you know, substance you know, to humans you know, was the same method that the MDMA, you know, researchers used when they were doing their study at UCLA. At around the, you know, same time, there was a, you know, psilocybin study at the University of Arizona um, in Tucson and an ibogaine study in the University of you know, Miami, Florida. And then there was some studies came out of Hopkins and then NYU and, yeah, so... It's a you know, growth industry again. Hopkins just received a you know, $17 million grant to study you know, clinical you know, work with psychedelics. 
and a comparable institution was started at Imperial College in, in London. There only have been a handful of DMT studies, though. The majority of research with humans with these drugs are using psilocybin. There's a couple of LSD studies, but primarily psilocybin. There was a you know, German study giving DMT in the early you know, 2000s, and there's a group in Imperial College um, in London that's been giving DMT for about a couple of years now. There have been a you know, number of ayahuasca studies. They began you know, scientifically in you know, Barcelona, and a you know, scientific study occurred in Brazil as well. Most of the brain chemistry you know, research with ayahuasca has occurred in Spain up until you know, recently. The Brazilians are doing you know, more and more ayahuasca research, both you know, clinical and brain imaging. You know, so it's a growth industry. Yeah, it seems to be more and more interest in it. You know, based on your extensive knowledge and being around subjects, your patients, how would you describe maybe the difference between a DMT experience and maybe psilocybin, the Wyahoska, the LSD, peyote? Is there any significant difference? Well, you know, there's two major differences. You know, the most obvious is the time course. If you take oral ayahuasca or, you know, psilocybin or LSD orally, you know, they might take a half hour um, to an hour to begin working. You know, they would last you know, six, eight, 12 hours or so. Yeah, with you know, DMT, it isn't orally active by itself. It has to be injected or smoked, in which you know, case it begins to work in a few heartbeats. You know, peaks in a couple of minutes. It starts to you know, fade at about the five to eight minute point, and it's completely resolved within a half hour. It's you know quite a you know different time course, and because of that short time course, there isn't a lot of you know time to, or you know there isn't a lot of opportunity to steer the effect. You know, mostly you know, need to hold on and stay alert to what's going on around you. You can interact, but you can't you know really steer it all that much. It's pretty overwhelming. Once you get your bearings, it starts to fade. You know, the time course impacts the quality of the experience. And the quality of the experience is also unique in that probably more commonly than with other psychedelics, there's more frequently reports of these beings which are kind of inhabiting that mental space, which are intelligent, aware, they interact with you, they're powerful, they can harm, they can heal. Communication can be you know, variously good or kind of sketchy because of you know, lack of a common language, as it were. Even though some you know, people report those kinds of effects on you know, psilocybin and on LSD, they aren't as you know, nearly ubiquitous as what takes place with DMT. You know, because ayahuasca, the you know, visionary ingredient is DMT, there's um, a lot of reports of those beings. But, you know, the time course is more typical of an orally active drug. Interesting. You know, it's been reported Steve Jobs had said that LSD had made him have many of his insights or led to many of his insights. You know, were you able to draw any conclusions in the studies that you've done between psychedelics and creativity? Yeah, well, I've not made a study of it, you know, but I've considered the results of our study and what they may mean with respect to just what these drugs do. Like, you know, do they make you more spiritual? Do they make you more creative? Do they make you kinder? Do they advance your evolution somehow? The current 
wave of studies using you know, psychedelics for clinical benefit or spiritual kinds of benefit rely on a lot of you know, preparation. It's almost an indoctrination. Education about what these drugs do and how, what they're good for, you know, what's the you know, best possible outcome is, what to aim for. So once you're, you're having your drug experience, it's all you know, geared towards what you had been exposed to for 10 to 12 hours beforehand. The interpretation of the drug effect and you know, the management of the effect are all geared towards you know, the attainment of a particular state, like the mystical state, let's say. And once you've come down and you come in for your follow-up, you know, things are interpreted that way. The, you know, the integration takes place within a model that's been inculcated, that's been kind of you know, trained on the person. So I think in our study, we didn't really do any of that. I just was interested in you know, giving the drug and you know, seeing what happened. Yeah. You know, so I just said it's fast, it's short. You may think you've died. Don't worry. That won't happen. And if you get you know, sick, we've got a cardiac team on standby. So in that case, we just said, you know, good luck. Have your trip come back and report back to us. People were you know, themselves, in a way, on steroids, like on spiritual steroids or psychological steroids or you know, some kind of steroids. You know, it was an amplification, you know, magnification of you know, who they already were, what they were looking for what their goals and you know, their priorities were. So the drugs really didn't have intrinsically any kind of you know, property. If you wanted a religious experience, the one guy in our study you know, that had a mystical experience was a religious studies major in college and had always wanted a mystical experience. And he got one on DMT. There was a volunteer in the group that was a nurse who was very keen on the near-death experience. And she had studied them. She wanted to have one. And on DMT, she had an NDE. So I think they work on who you are, you know, rather than possessing any intrinsic properties of their own. The case in point I you know, like to you know, bring up is the case of you know, Charles you know, Manson and the way that he gave LSD to his followers. The people that you know, he gave LSD to were disaffected, you know, sociopaths, you know, violent. They felt you know, hard done by. You know, they wanted to exact revenge on persecuting society. And they took LSD with you know, Charles Manson and he inculcated a helter-skelter model. You know, rather than the mystical experience model, it was a helter-skelter model. You know, there would be a you know, race war the blacks would win, you know, Manson and his group would, you know, lead the black, you know, victors. So it required beginning a race war, which involved, you know, killing famous rich people. So they said, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, I understand now, you know, you know, that makes sense. And they were completely dedicated. I mean, it was the most important thing in their life. Things finally made sense. They were true disciples. So I think it's the same thing, but working on the opposite end of, you know, the moral spectrum. With these you know, mystical states experiences, you have certain people that are already in a certain state of mind. They want a certain thing. They're gearing up for it. They're educated in a way to do it. And it happens. You know, same with Manson's experiments. Well, thank you for enlightening me on that because, you know, I was, I think it was in, the, in your book, it was like the spirit gives you what you want and which I thought was a pretty interesting statement. And now you just, you know, you corroborated that and, and now I get it, you know, so whether or not that's divine or not, it's probably still subject to speculation. But 
there's something there. I read some of your sources and, you know, some of the reports differ on the role of the ego during these psychedelic states. And can you make any comments on that, doctor, the role of the ego? Yeah, well, well, so how, you know, would you define ego? It's, you know, used in a lot of different ways. And that's a good question back because I'm thinking it's what runs your personalities or what steers your personalities. Maybe these archetypes hidden somewhere deep in your brain somehow is directing you to interact with the world around you. That would be what I would think the ego state is. Of course, yeah, I'm not a doctor yeah. either. Is that the classic yeah, definition? Yeah, like definition. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's pretty good. Yeah. It's the part of your mind that you identify with that makes decisions kind of you know, mediating between you know inner drives and outer constraints it's your you know, sense of self what you know, defines yourself based on the decisions you made and the experiences that you've had so in the you know classical your know, mystical experience that you know, part of the mind just it is abolished. There's an expression in you know, the research which refers to ego dissolving experiences. It's a you know, scientific term with its own questionnaire. And in the classical, you know, mystical experience questionnaire, the sense of self you know, disappears. You become you know, one with you know, something else. It's all one. You lose your personality. There's no more distinct you know, personality. There's no difference between other and self. You're just merged with the ground of all being or the you know, source of everything. It's you know, nonverbal just because that part of the mind is no longer operating. So that kind of state is what I call the mystical unitive state, which is what is being you know, sought in the mystical experience world. And compared to that, I've coined the expression interactive relational kinds of spiritual experiences, both brought on by drugs and not brought on by drugs. So the you know, classic Western model for an interactive you know, relational spiritual experience is that of Old New Testament prophetic experience, which if you, you know, read it carefully, if you read the Old Testament carefully, you, well, the Hebrew Bible, the descriptions of spiritual experiences and the descriptions of our DMT volunteers were extremely similar. The DMT experience is interactive and relational. There's no white light, you know, generally. Uh, it's you know, full of beings that you're interacting with, which isn't unitive at all, you know, interactive. So the Buddhist, you know, model, I suppose, emphasizes, you know, the unitive, you know, mystical, the Christian, you know, mystical tradition. You know, Kabbalah, you know, even in the you know, Middle Ages, you know, but within the world's great religions, the prophetic experience is an interactive, you know, relational kind of experience. There's beings, there's conversation to and fro, there's out-of-body travel, there's fear, there's emotion, and there's words. There's a lot of words being spoken in the you know, prophetic experience. You know, the communication occurs you know, mostly verbally. You know, whereas in the DMT experience, more often than you know, not the the information was communicated telepathically between the beings and the volunteer. You know, so to explain, you know, the DMT effect from a spiritual point of view, wasn't really able to rely on the Buddhist model. I, you know, more had to rely on the Old Testament model because it was just more similar. You know, the two states resembled each other um, a lot more. It might be helpful if I define how I use the term you know, prophecy. You know, most you know, people think about foretelling or predicting as, you know, part of, you know, what it means. But, you know, generally predictions or, you know, foretelling aren't completely a 
you know, necessary requirement for the life and for the mission of a prophet. Sometimes they come true, you know, sometimes they don't. But in any case, I just define the prophetic experience as any spiritual experience undergone by any figure in the Hebrew Bible. It could be a handmaiden, it could be a slave, it could be a, a soldier, it could be Ezekiel, it could be Moses, it could be you know, Samuel's mother. It could be inspiration, you know, visions, you know, voices, extraordinary courage, extraordinary ideas, powers, those kinds of things. They all would you know, fall under the umbrella of spiritual experience. You know, so that's you know, the way that I define you know, the prophetic state as I exploit it in my DMT and the Soul of Prophecy book. Definitely some interesting, interesting, interesting parallels there. And it's nice to hear you expand on it. Have you been able to draw any, you know, you you mentioned the duration states of the different psychedelic. Have you been able to draw any conclusions, doctor, about the state of consciousness of the human organism? Well, it kind of depends what you mean by uh, you know, consciousness. Awareness. You know, we've heard a lot of talk about parallel worlds. And I guess, you know, a lot of the physicists talk about multiverses. And, you know, the state of consciousness that we see, I guess there's a quantum physics or mechanics element to the question, but drawing upon your experience as a research scientist, doctor, if you will, what do you think about that? Or what is consciousness, I guess, in Dr. Strassman's expertise? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I've got a stock answer for that. <laughs> I, want the, I, say, I want the yeah, deep one. Yeah. Is, well, we can begin with the stock one. My stock answer is it's like pornography. You can't define it, but you know it when you see it. So it's quite you know, difficult to you know, pin down, but you know it. You know when you're conscious and you know when you're not. You can be unconscious, you could be you know, more or less conscious. I've kind of you know, taken my cue to understanding how the mind works from the medieval Jewish philosophers from like 900 AD to 1700 AD, which you know, kind of you know, builds on Aristotle, who divided the mind into the imaginative faculty and the rational faculty. You know, the rational you know, faculty deals with abstract ideas, with, you know, with ideas as opposed to things like visible or apprehensible, you know, perceptible objects. You know, the imagination is you know, where one experiences you know, perceptible objects, perceptible things, you know, feelings, you know, sights and sounds, touch, you know, your body, you are embodied in the imagination. Pain, you know, is contained in the imagination. Feelings like emotions, euphoria or terror, you know, those are all, you know, mental components which are, you know, situated in the imagination. You know, the intellect or, you know, the rational you know, faculty deals with abstract ideas. You know, mathematical is the you know, purest, you know, sense of the, um, of the notion. But, you know, like, you know, things like true and false, good and bad, you know, hap, um, you know, righted, wrong, you know, concepts um, as opposed you know, to perceptions. So I think that if you want to be as developed a person as you can be, you need to develop both your imagination, the imaginative you know, faculty in the mind, the purity of your perceptions. They're not you know, muddied by being distracted or depressed or otherwise, you know, not just, you know, experiencing the outside world as directly as you possibly can. So you want to develop your imagination, you know, to the best of your ability. And you also want to develop your intellect to the best of your ability. So I think you can work on the imagination with the help of psychedelics. They primarily are perceptual. You feel things differently, you hear things differently, you see them differently. 
your body feels different, all your emotions are affected. You know, but on the other hand, you know, there isn't that much of an effect on the intellect, the rational part of the, the mind. You know, the content of the DMT experience or of you know psychedelics, I think um, in general, the verbal cognitive words coming out of the, the mouths or the pens of people who take you know, psychedelics aren't especially new. They just seem truer to that person at the time. You know, but they're not, you know, new ideas. You know, they're not like, yeah, you know, they you know, just don't stand out in the immediate experience as compelling as the you know, perceptual, you know, the aesthetic qualities of the trip. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it's you know, more dependent on your brain, like your biology, in a way, your genes. Um, you can't really, you know, do all that much with your imagination if it's not done, you know, biologically. So on the other hand, the intellect, you can train, enlarge, make you know, better through study and through the you know, practice of the virtues, which are more abstract. Um, ideas you know, that you've read, you can integrate into you know, how you understand the things that you're perceiving through or on the screen of the imagination. If you, you know, practice the virtues, you know, that uh, keeps you from making the wrong decisions, which spares a lot of wear and tear and you know, gives you lots more energy for uh, being advanced or understanding things or you know being in a particular equilibrium with your world that uh, is you know less stressful than would otherwise be the case thank you for those insights those are pretty powerful do you have any i know you had a, a rough time recently and i'm so glad that you're here as are many other people and do you have any interest dr strassman to do continued research yeah, I think I would, you know, given the right you know, set of circumstances. I'm not sure I would want to work at a university again. I think I'd like to get things going with a freestanding institution, which would be multidisciplinary in the true you know, sense of the world, um, of the word. You know, there'd be, you know, religious, well, it would be like a university or an institute of consciousness. You know, there would know, be a lab and a library, research rooms, but you know, also you know, there would be a you know, division of religion in theology, you know, cognitive science, pharmacology, psychology. It would uh, possess all of the disciplines that could be enhanced by the introduction of the you know, psychedelic experience into their discussions. And there would be disciplines that would help us understand and unpack the you know, psychedelic experience at the same time. Thank you. You know, Dr. Strassman, do you think that there is a humankind benefit to psychedelics? Well, you know, only if they're used right. I mean, they're, you know, like as I was, you know, kind of talking about with the Charles Manson model of LSD administration, you know, they're, you know, kind of nonspecific. They just work on what's already there. So if you have, you know, good intent, and you've you know, done your homework and you've done the training, then they can be for good. I don't think it's because that they produce any new ideas, but you know, the ideas which are already there, which are you know, lofty ideas, but you're not really you know, sure that they're true. If you're taking a you know, psychedelic to answer that question, the best possible outcome and a very common one is they are true. And now my life has direction. So... I think it just you know depends on you know who's taking them and why. Well, I'm fascinated by your interest to do more research because I I just think that it's needed. And when you have you know pioneering attitudes 
like yours, I think it just adds a huge benefit to this whole human experience. Where do you see yourself in the next few years, in the next five years? Where do you see Dr. Straussman? Well, I mean, if you know, somebody doesn't you know, call me with huge um, endowment, grant, gift to get the you know, research unit or you know, the research institution off the ground. You know, I actually, with a couple of you know, colleagues, Steve Barker and Andrew Stone, Steve Barker used to be at LSU and you know, worked on the assay for DMT development and has been a key you know, figure in the you know, field these last you know, 50 years almost. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Stone, uh, an old friend of Steve Jobs, like an Apple software designer, next you know, software designer. A number of years ago, Steve, Andrew, and I you know, founded the Cottonwood Research Institute, which you know, had in you know, mind you know, the idea of, of ultimately opening a freestanding you know, research institution. But other things intervened. You know, life intervened, as they say, and it's you know, not been all that active. It still is a nonprofit, you know, tax-deductible foundation, so that still you know, be the nidus or you know, the catalyst for freestanding you know, center like that. In the meantime, I have you know, more writing to do. I've got you know more stories or more installments of the character of my of my alter ego Joseph Levy, and I also am entranced by the character of Abraham in the Bible. Abraham, you know, lived a you know, fully prophetic life you know, before there was any Judaism. There was no you know law. There were no you know, regulatory you know handbooks and things you know that you needed to do and you know, and you know things that you shouldn't do. Um, in order you know, to experience salvation. You know, Abraham just, you know, lived his life by communicating with God, by asking God what to do, by, you know, pleading with God, with, you know, thanking God, asking God. So it was all a, you know, prophetic life. And I've been studying, you know, his, you know, life and times and trials for a number of years and taking notes. So I would like to try my hand at some, you know, biblical, you know, fiction. You know, the main stumbling block I am you know, finding with all of the books that I've you know, sold in you know, the non-fiction you know, world is that it's really hard to you know, cross over, as it were, you know, to fiction. So um, if any of your listeners are agents and want to help me you know, develop that you know, market with comparable quantities as my non-fiction readers, uh, I would love to hear from them. <laughs> no, that's great. You know, How can people find out more information about you, doctor? How can they, you know, Tell us about your website, and then how can we get your books? Well, um, I have a fairly active website, rickstrassman.com, and Facebook. So you can you know, contact me through either you know, my own you know, website or, um, or through Facebook. You can order books you know, through the regular channels, or you can order them through my site, uh, in which case I will inscribe and you know, sign them. It's a, a bit more of expense, you know, plus I get a, you know, like a larger cut as well. You know, but you, you know, get my signature and you know some words of inspiration. Which leads me to this question or comment. Do you have personally a mantra that you live by based on your life experiences? Well, I suppose it would be Jeremiah you know, seventeen fourteen was you know what I you know was repeating to myself over and over and over again as I was just you know going downhill you know biologically and you know, then as I was you know you know recuperating as you know, kind of a you know, shell of my former self well I'm in the beginning of you know that recuperation phase it's an interesting you know verse it's about you know being you know, healed by God according to God's you know will I just wanted to be healed by God however God wanted to heal me if it involved dying then you know that was fine with me I didn't really 
you don't want it to you know, come from me because I was obviously making the wrong decisions. I you know wanted you know whatever you know the outcome was going to be according to God's will. So you know that was a very powerful verse. Yeah, Jeremiah 17, 14. I'm going to have to look that one up. Our guest today on Task Force Zen Radio is Dr. Rick Strassman, medical research pioneer who has bridged the gap between the conscious and the unconscious, the seen, the unseen. He's doing some incredible things. He has done some incredible things. And and he's not out yet. He's got some ideas for the future. And, you know, he mentioned the difference in the book writing techniques, but anybody out there that wants more information can go to his website and get books there. And he's in a recovery phase now, but he looks good to me and he's going to definitely- No, no, I'm pretty good. Yeah. Definitely going to gonna still you know, give to the world. And I can just tell you this, Dr. Strassman, that I'm humbled and I'm honored to finally get you on a podcast show. I know we I tried a while ago. I didn't know you were going through all those things, but I'm glad you're here. And if there's anything we can do on our end to build a network and to help you further along, we're here for you. Well, uh, you know, that was a number of years ago. It was you know, 2014, by you know, January you know, 2015. I was you know, feeling pretty good again. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm getting older. I wish you know, my health were you know, better, but yeah, I'm pretty busy. Well, fascinating research that you've done. You have... You may not even realize it, but I know that you have helped probably millions of people who have read the book and and have looked at the things that you've done. And and I don't say it lightly when I say pioneer. You know, you go through this life, you don't meet a lot of pioneers. And I just know that I'm blessed to meet one. So just thank you for that. I'm not blowing smoke. I mean that. And I wish you well and continued success. And I know we're going to cross paths because... If you start doing that research, we're going to start building a network together. And I just think that would be fascinating if you could get something like that financed and funded and and up and running, because I think the world needs something like that right about now. Yeah, I think it could serve a number of useful purposes. That's for sure. Well, thank you, Dr. Strassman. Did we miss anything? Is there anything you wanted to say in closing or you have the gavel? No, not really. You know, we covered a lot of territory and I think it's going to be one of those interviews that requires some unpacking. Yeah, I think we fitted in a lot of stuff. Well, God bless you and I hope to see you again in the future. Okay, thanks, John. So take it easy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Task Force Zen Radio. Through education, we will raise global awareness, create more balance, perpetuate human healing, and diminish suffering in our world because humankind matters. 